And our focus will be on verses 15 to 25. Actually, we'll begin reading in verse 11 to give us more context. Children, your questions this evening. First, why did Moses have to run away from Egypt? Two, what job did Moses have when he was in Midian? And three, find John 10, 11 in your Bible. What does Jesus call himself? And then what does he do for his sheep? Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of God. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We know that you have given us your word for our good. We know that you've given us these narratives, these accounts so long ago among your people to instruct us so that we might learn. And so as we come to your word tonight, we pray that we would receive your word for what it is, the word of you, the living God. And as we've read it, you've already touched our hearts, Lord. And now as we hear your word preached, we pray that you would use your word in that fashion to move us towards you, to respond to you appropriately as we trust we will ultimately hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in Exodus, we've discovered that the people of Israel are slaves and captives in Egypt. It keeps getting worse. Their bondage keeps getting worse. The oppression keeps getting worse as they multiply, as their numbers multiply. You remember that Pharaoh tries to stop that growth, that multiplication. He tries to control them with slavery. He tries to kill off the firstborn 
uh, are the, the male children of Israel. And it's in that context that we have the amazing story of Moses being spared by his parents' faithfulness in putting him in this little mini ark and floating him in the water. And then uh, we find out that Pharaoh's daughter finds him and we follow Moses from birth to the point where we see he's raised by his own mother, his Hebrew mother, and so he's got the covenant context in the people of God learning the things of the Hebrews, but then he ends up ending up in, he ends up in the house of Pharaoh where he's raised as an Egyptian. Now we have to remember that God marked Moses as his deliverer a long time before we enter into the story. We discover that he is the right man for the position, the human leader, to deliver Israel out of their bondage. But when he becomes a man, he tries to force, as it were, God's hand. Don't think that was necessarily his motive, but that ends up what happens. He sees one uh, Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he rises up and he kills the Egyptian, buries him in a shallow grave, and then he tries to intervene in a fight between two Hebrews. He discovers he's found out, and so he has to flee because Pharaoh finds out and Pharaoh wants to kill him. Uh, Moses, in his attempt, it was the wrong timing, it was wrong-headedness, it was ill-conceived, but he was still God's man. But he had some growing to do. He had some growing to do. He wasn't yet ready. He had some training already. We discover that, that again, he was raised in the household of the Hebrews, so he knew the ways of God. And then he was raised in the household of Pharaoh, so he knew uh, the ways of the Egyptians. He was also well-educated there. He proved to be faithful, so he's growing. Proved to be faithful, he aligned himself with God's people rather than the Egyptians. He's learning many things. In fact, if you think about it, when he flees, as he has to do, from Pharaoh, and he goes through the desert wilderness out to Midian, he's also learning the geography of the land, which will come in very handy later in the story of Exodus. We won't get there tonight. But again, he's not yet ready. He's not yet ready. God is preparing him. God's timing is not yet right for Moses to be the deliverer. Certain major things had to happen in Moses' life. Things had to happen in the people of Israel's understanding of who God was. And certainly a message needed to be sent to Pharaoh and the Egyptians before there could be a deliverance of God's people. So Moses flees because his life is in danger. He flees from Pharaoh and he finds safe haven in Midian. Now the Midianites were descendants of Abraham through Keturah. And so they are from the line of Abraham. They were among them, there were God-fearing people. Now there was a mixed bag there. In the history of Israel, there's a love-hate relationship with the Midianites but God directs Moses to at least one group of Midianites who were God-fearing, and it would be advantageous to him, and it would also be a part of his growth. He ends up in the presence of some God-fearing Midianites, and it starts when he goes to a well. He's undoubtedly exhausted from his trip. He needs some refreshment, and he goes to a well, and he sees these shepherdesses in distress. Imagine this, seven PK daughters, priest kid daughters. 
And he sees them in distress, and like any wise single man would do, he shows some chivalry. And he drives away these bad shepherds that are trying to stop the women from getting the water. And not only does he drive them away, but he gives them the water, and he actually, the word is, he saves them from their distress. Well, for some reason, it's not as major an event as you might think. They go back to their house and they start telling their dad the story about this Egyptian, this Egyptian that rescued them from these shepherds and provided for them. And his immediate response, here it's Ruel, and we'll discover later he's also Jethro. His response is, well, where is he? Go get him. Go get him and bring him back here. And then this Egyptian turns out, after all, to be a Jew, a God-fearing Jew, someone very much kindred to this Midian priest. Now think about the growth process for Moses here. Moses, when he was younger, was exposed to the truths of God through his Hebrew family. But think about what he was exposed to living in the household of Pharaoh. We're talking about some very serious paganism, some very offensive things to any Hebrew mind, would be an offense to any Christian mind. And so he's exposed to all these things. His life is in turmoil. He's got to run, and he ends up in this place where his faith in the one God is going to be reinforced by this God-fearing Midianite and his family. And so this is God's provision leading him to Jethro. He's being reintroduced to God, you might say, after all the craziness of Egypt and his flight through the wilderness. And Jethro will continue to play a part in Moses' ministry for the rest of his life. There's another mark of Moses' growth, and that's what I want to trace here, is Moses' growth in being a leader. So there's already some seeds of leadership taking place, but there are two more things that we discover in this relationship with this Midianite family. He ends up being married to one of them. These two next steps in leadership skills, the first one is marriage. It's been rightly said that marriage is sanctifying. And so Zipporah will be used as a sanctifying element, live human being, beautiful wife, in Moses' wife. We'll find out later that he actually has her save his life. His marriage to Zipporah is a life-saving, life-saving providence of God. But he has to learn leadership in leading his wife. And so marriage, for men in particular, is a lesson in leadership that shall not, should not, must not be shirked. But then there's another little surprise that leads to his leadership, and that is he becomes a dad. Childbearing is another element in his growth. However much involved he was, he had to learn godly leadership of his son. He names his son Gershom. Son's name reflects the fact that he was a, a sojourner or, or a stranger in a foreign land, and that land was Egypt. And so we're seeing these steps in Moses' life where he's becoming more and more of a leader for God's people. You might say 
that he needed to learn how to shepherd his own little flock, his family, but he's also being prepared to shepherd a humongous flock called Israel, and they're not an easy flock at all. He needs some serious training to be a shepherd of the sheep. Now, leadership, as far as shepherding goes, of God's people is not new. Abel, even though he was cut short, he was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. He was a major leader of God's people. Later, David will be the king of Israel. He was a shepherd. But here we have Moses going from royalty to becoming a shepherd, but he's learning through the process. You think about what shepherds do what they do with their sheep. When it comes to sheep, they have to feed them, they have to lead them, they have to protect them, they have to discipline them for their own good. Sheep, I'm told, are fairly dumb and helpless. And so his leadership, even of these animals, is going to require great patience and skill. But he's learning these things. But it's so much more heightened when it comes to him being a shepherd of God's people. He's shepherding souls. He's shepherding humans. He's got to be in tune with their souls and the needs of their souls. And and for Moses, all the needs that they have as this massive people that will eventually lead out of Egypt. He's got to be prepared. Now, what he needs to remember, and we'll also look at this towards the end, he needs to remember that ultimately he is not the the great deliverer of God's people. He's God's instrument. He's the human deliverer, but God is the deliverer of his people. But Moses had to learn. And he had to learn what it meant to shepherd the people. There are times when the people would be rebellious. They would not want to listen to the shepherd's voice. They would be hungry and he would need to feed them. He need to protect them. He need to protect them sometimes from their own folly and their own ignorance. And he would again, at one point, even be willing to lay down his life so that his people would not have to bear the wrath that was coming at them potentially from God because of their disobedience. Does that sound familiar? In Moses, we've already seen just in these short observations, some some signs that point us to Christ. That leads me to say that a true shepherd leader of God's people has to have Christ-like, Christ-like qualities to be a good shepherd leader. Interestingly, we're going to fast forward, we're going to step out of our story here in Exodus, we're going to fast forward to Christ. Interestingly, Jesus was never a shepherd And yet he uses the analogy of a shepherd to show how much he loves his people. One of the great I am's of Jesus in the Gospels is I am the good shepherd. There's only one good shepherd. One good shepherd, and that's Jesus. Interesting to note that even in the announcement of Jesus coming, prophecy is quoted, and sometimes we miss this in the upcoming Christmas season. But in Matthew 2.6, here's what we read. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is that shepherd. 
Tragically, in the history of Israel, you had many wicked shepherds. That's part of what led Israel astray in the Old Testament. Even by the time you get to the New Testament, the leadership in Israel is corrupt. They're terrible shepherds. Jesus, in a sense, has to drive the bad shepherds away from his people. Jesus looks at the people at one point and he has pity on them because they're as sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus comes in the fulfillment of all that imagery in the Old Testament of the shepherd and he comes as the good shepherd. I want you to turn to John chapter 10. Sometimes what I like to do in the evening service is provide passages that give comfort as we lie down to sleep at the end of the Lord's Day before a new week. And this certainly is one. If you're one of Christ's sheep, this should be immensely comforting to your soul. Certainly could read Psalm 23. Jesus is the fulfillment of that shepherd. But listen to what Jesus says and listen for yourselves as your comfort as God's sheep. But then we're going to look at some aspects of this for our context tonight. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." So much there in Jesus' illustration of the sheep and the flock and the shepherd. He's the gate through which you enter. He actually ends up being the sacrifice lamb, but in our context here, he's the good shepherd. And so that should comfort all of our souls when we think about who our shepherd is. But in light of our trying to understand this issue of leadership, he's also the example. 
He's the example for all who would be leaders in the church, model for all spiritual shepherds. Being a spiritual shepherd has a learning curve. We're going to step out even further from our story and and jump to some application. Because in our system, that is our church government, the reason we're called Presbyterians is because we are led by overseers. We're led by under-shepherds of Christ. We call them elders. And they've been given a tremendous task to develop leadership skills to care for the flock of Christ here. And the greatest model they can follow, we can follow, is to follow Christ in in his example of being the good shepherd. It's a learning curve, right? We start with the recognizable traits, the recognizable fundamentals, qualifications for leadership, for elders in particular, in 1 Timothy and Titus, right? And there are basic things laid out there. Need the basics, the skills, the desire, and then we grow in those things. We grow in our care for the flock, mature. Mature in our ability those who are elders longer and stay elders longer should grow in their depth of love and care for the flock. Fighting temptation sometimes to become complacent or do it as a rote duty or even get frustrated with the congregation and individuals who don't want to hear the good shepherd's voice. All kinds of things can come at elders in the church, but but the really, we are really to be growing deeper in our grasp of what it really means to love the people of God. If you're still in John, turn to the very last chapter. Very last chapter. I should mention, before I go any further, that I have not yet met an elder who believes that we rise up to our own standard of what we want to do for the flock. But by the grace of God, we do the best that we can. And so uh, encourage your elders. But here at the end of John, this whole issue of shepherding is something that Jesus brings up to Peter in his reinstatement. And we don't want to miss the language here. So this is John 21, chapter, or verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Isn't that interesting? That when Jesus is reinstating Peter, testing his love for himself, that is Jesus, 
Jesus explains to Peter, this leader in the church, the way to express that love to me, Jesus, is to care for the flock of God. I find that stunning. Find that stunning. All of our leaders, our elders and deacons as well, were given a book called The Shepherd Leader by a pastor named Timothy Whitmer. Reference to this passage, he says, As we have seen in all the Gospels, following Jesus ultimately entails shepherding his sheep. John's epilogue makes this most explicit. While Jesus had placed an enormous emphasis on the disciples' relationship with him, this final scene demonstrates the intended outcome of that intimacy. Verbs convey the emphasis on action. Three times Peter is told to feed and shepherd my sheep. And so that's a word to our elders in the church. When Paul is, is leaving Ephesus, here's what he says to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in whom, I'm sorry, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What a great responsibility we have. Blood-bought sheep. Blood-bought sheep. To the people of God that are the sheep of the flock under the under-shepherds, our elders, from Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How the people of Israel needed to hear that with reference to poor Moses, who underwent such terrible things from the people of God so often. Well, back to our Exodus context. Moses still needed to learn some big lessons. He needed to learn the biggest lesson of all. He needed to have in his mind no doubt about who God is. Who God is. And that God was the deliverer. Moses still has some serious learning to do. Back in Egypt, the people are more and more sorely oppressed. And all they had left was prayer. And so they cry out to God. They cry out to God in their misery. So appropriate to do. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cried out for help. The people of Israel, fickle as they may be, when they were at their dire need, they knew which direction to turn. Not to any human deliverer. They learned to turn up, to cry out to God, pleading with him for deliverance. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God hears his people when they're groaning. That's good for us all to remember. But here, it's Israel struggling and calling out, and God remembers. And when God remembers, it's not as if, it's not as if God is saying, oh, I forgot about my people. But he calls to mind that covenant that he made with his people, that unbreakable covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will have a people unto myself. They will be multitudes upon multitudes, and they will have a land of their own. Well, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that was chasing after Moses, dies. And this opens up a window of opportunity for Moses to at least, for the time being, get safely back to Egypt. He'll face another pharaoh, another wicked pharaoh, but he'll be able to get back. Things are about to break loose in the narrative, in the account of what happens to the people of Israel. But Moses needed further training of the most profound kind. He will face the fire. He will face fire from Pharaoh. He'll face the fire from his own people. But before that, he'll face another fire. He'll face another fire that will profoundly change his life and forever shape his ministry. More next time. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you so much for your mercy towards us. We thank you that you have provided throughout the ages many faithful leaders that you have blessed with gifts to guide your people. But Lord, we know that the greatest efforts of even the greatest human leaders that the church has ever seen is so far surpassed pales in comparison to our great shepherd, the good shepherd, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So tonight we're so thankful for our great shepherd. But Lord, we're also thankful for those you've appointed over us to be our under-shepherds under the Savior, Jesus. Tonight we pause to pray for our elders, that you would give them wisdom and strength and guidance as We are all in this learning curve, needing to know you better, needing to understand your people better, learning what it means to love your people more profoundly. Lord, we have the example of our great good shepherd, and we need your work in us to help us to rise to the task that you've called us to. Lord, we thank you tonight for your love for us and your care, that you are always here, and that you tune your ears to us, that you will never forget your covenant commitment to your people. We're included in that ancient people, your covenant people, even down to this day. You are faithful to your people. And as we learned at the very end of our passage, you hear the groaning 
of your people when they're hurting. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight or within listening of this prayer, help those who are groaning, perhaps in misery and deep sorrow of heart, to cry out to you and to remember that you hear our prayers and you remember your commitment to 